Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Next week, Prio partners with the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee, Christian Mikkelsen Institute, CMI, and Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue to organize Afghanistan Week. This is a biannual event where politicians, journalists, academics, and activists from Afghanistan, Norway, and beyond come together to address key issues facing the country, as well as to stimulate debate and understanding about Afghanistan in Norway. This year, the week will be online, streaming live and available as videos and audio recordings afterward. Today, to discuss gender in Afghanistan, I'm joined by Christian Bad Kartviken and Torun Vimpelman. We'll set the stage for some of the kinds of discussions you can hear more of next week. Christian was director of PRIO from 2009 to 2017. He's currently a research professor at PRIO with much of his research focus on Afghanistan. He also leads the PRIO Middle East Center. Turin is a senior researcher at CMI in Bergen. She's a political ethnographer whose current focus is on the intersections between gender, political, and legal orders in contemporary Afghanistan. Welcome, Christian and Turin. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really uh, glad that we get to have this discussion ahead of Afghanistan Week, which is starting on Monday. So in just a couple of days, people will get to have a little bit more information about Afghanistan, what's going on, and hear from people on the ground in the country and experts around the world. Um, but today we're going to specifically talk about Afghanistan and gender and women. Uh, this is also because this week we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Um, all of Norway was was involved in the celebration, but Prio was especially invested with our Gender, Peace, and Security Center. And so I want to start with a question to you, Christian. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the current state of affairs for, for women in the talks, the peace talks with the Taliban at the moment, and what exactly is going on? Well, clearly everybody expects the uh, women's issue to be one of the most difficult items in the uh, peace process. But really, uh, the peace process haven't gotten that far yet. It's currently really in a difficult in a difficult place where the parties are argued about the, uh, the rules of engagement for the talks. Uh, but what we can take note, though, is, uh, is how many women are represented in the talks. And if you look at that, on the Taliban side, there are simply none in their negotiation uh, uh, team on the government side, four out of 19 persons are women. And there's been a lot of criticism over that. But if we look at the share of female representation there as compared to other major bodies in Afghan governance, it's actually a uh, very high share by those standards. So, uh, Torun, maybe I can throw this question to you. Women's rights uh, were part of the justification for international opposition and even intervention for toppling the Taliban regime. Why is that? So I think there was certainly a lot of um, international opposition to the gender policies of the Taliban when they were in power, um, a lot of outrage. But I don't think that in any way, of course, caused the invasion in 2001. Uh, the U.S. decision uh, to topple the Taliban was uh, all to do with um, the attacks on the 11th of September and uh, the need that they felt to show resolve uh, in the aftermath of those attacks. Um, and we did hear about um, women's rights a little bit uh, in the preparation of the invasion, but we had heard much more about it afterwards. 
So it was more of a post uh, hoc kind of justification uh, that um, Afghan women needed to be liberated from the Taliban uh, regime, which was in many ways abhorrent. Women were leading extremely restricted lives, uh, not able to um, go out without a male chaperone or to, to have an education uh, at any level or to work. Um, so, um, yeah, but the, that outrage for those policies did certainly not cause the invasion. Right. Um, and I mean, what has actually changed for women in Afghanistan since since 2001, since the intervention to now? I mean, obviously, we'll probably hear a lot more about this firsthand next week um, during Afghanistan week and the discussions there. But maybe you can can tell us a little bit about that, because that's obviously something that you get into with your research. Yeah, it's um, first of all, it's a very politicized question, because, um, you know, there is a, a, a longer historical tradition. Uh, of Western countries um, using often the claim of kind of liberating Muslim women, you know, from Muslim men, uh, using that as a justification of rule and colonial um, projects. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's um, I think that's made it difficult to have a nuanced assessment of what has really changed for Afghan women now, because it's almost like if you say certain things have changed, it's almost like you support the Western intervention. Um, but having said that, I think it's it's a very complex picture. Um, and we have to keep in mind that now, um, you know, the situation, the security situation in most of Afghanistan is extremely bad. So, you know, those um, things that have changed are often in smaller pockets uh, in the urban areas. Um, the things that have changed, it's, uh, you know, very obvious things like the Taliban didn't allow women to go to school. It didn't allow uh, women to go outside of their houses without a male kind of chaperone. Uh, you know, those uh, policies have been completely removed uh, since 2001. Um, women are uh, in, in politics. Uh, they're in public administration. They're in business. Um very much uh, there's been an increase in particular after um, Ghani took power um, a few years ago. Um, but I think the most important change um, in those areas that are kind of safe-ish, because <laughs> very few areas are, um, is this kind of feeling of, 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 it's more of a sentiment of women being able to be in public. Um, you know, it's changing every year, I think. Um, in the first years after 2001, you saw very few women um, asserting themselves uh, in public spaces. You know, there was much more kind of modesty in appearance. Um, in in the streets, you know, uh, it had a feeling of women being interlocutors or sorry, interlopers um, that shouldn't really be there. But I think in recent years, you, you're starting to see women in parks, women sitting on benches, women being in cafes, uh, you know, in urban areas. And I think perhaps that's the most one of the most important changes that women feel more comfortable in public. Kirsten, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I agree with everything what Torin said. I think it is a very mixed picture, and certainly important things have happened, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to the elite in the cities. And we, it's important because it does mean that, uh, that women actually have a voice in uh, important political uh, debates. At the same time, I think a, a vast majority of Afghan women haven't, seen that much change. Uh, for them, their main concern may be much more immediate concerns, such as uh, health, maternal health, the health of their children, 
access to education and in some areas access to education uh, has improved uh, also for girls but i think overall uh, many are many don't really see that much of a change and, and part of the reason for that is that um, not only that there is a lack of political will uh, indeed there there is in large parts of the government apparatus but also that uh, gender uh, roles are culturally embedded in afghan rural communities and and it's not enough to uh, to put in place institutional reforms and legal regulations to to bring about that change it is a very difficult and actually quite conflictual process all the way down to the level of the individual household well let me just comment on something christian said because um although i i i agree very much that the change is very kind of different in urban and, and rural areas i think you know we must be very careful not to kind of construct um the change and the um the interest uh women have in and being in the public as as a kind of um elite interest or project um because i think there are a large part of um uh of women you know particularly uh from the highlands uh who come from very poor families originally um but are now um you know there's a there's a larger class transformation going on with women from poorer backgrounds being able to also take part in in public life you know going to uh university um working um even if they don't have higher education um and so on uh, so i think it's um and the, also i would say that a large kind of part of the story when it comes to the situation in the rural areas is is insecurity i think we would have seen a much broader change uh in those areas in terms of women's uh, access to, to public sphere and ability to to leave their houses if it wasn't for the deteriorating security situation mm um so Turan I want to ask you specifically because uh you have a book that came out in 2017 The Pitfalls of Protection Gender Violence and Power in Afghanistan and um you you say that uh aid and geopolitics have offered both opportunities but also obstacles to feminist politics. So um can you tell us a little bit about uh what you found there and and um because it sounds a little bit surprising maybe for some people. So what kind of obstacles has that led to for some women in Afghanistan? Yeah. Um the the book is based on on field work. Um uh three years of field work between 2009 and 2015. Uh so it's particularly I would say perhaps about the years when Karzai was in power. Um but it's um you know in terms of geopolitics being both um an opportunity and an obstacle. Uh I think there's been a tendency during that time when the political field was often very much dominated by conservative uh kind of jihadi style actors to take a lot of shortcuts um you know to to it would it was easier and perhaps more ef- uh, efficient uh to contact western embassies uh who then again contact through through their channels um power holders in Afghanistan to get something done uh whether it was a uh change in the law or um you know to do with women's protection such as shelters which i write about in the book and uh, establishment of um a special institution like courts and prosecution units for violence against women so these these things were achieved and they were achievements but they were achieved very often with a lot of international leverage um so i think at that point women activists uh felt like it was it was um 
it was easier uh, or more efficient, uh, effective to, to use that international leverage. And perhaps as a result, there wasn't so much interest in, um, uh, uh, in engaging with kind of local political actors. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that approach as well, because I understand that things were urgent. And, you know, when you try to um, improve women's rights, you cannot always wait for, for, for larger mobilization or alliance building. Sometimes you just have to act and seize opportunities. But I would add that, you know, things have changed a little bit in those since 2015 as well, 2016. Now, I think there is much more of a kind of um, bold feminist politics in Afghanistan, I would say, than, than, than maybe five, six years ago. Yes. And I mean, I think even internationally, um, that's probably true when we think about uh, feminist foreign policy kind of in the Swedish context and in the Norwegian as well, that some countries are, are more comfortable maybe uh, being bold uh, with with the way that their governments take stances. But then that leads me to my next question, which is for Christian, because we've kind of established that um, justification for intervention or op international opposition uh, towards the Taliban has been linked to women's rights, but maybe in more of a uh, kind of post-retrospective uh, re way. So, I mean, why is the women's question now so central um, to supporters of Afghanistan in this context of the ongoing talks? How has that changed? Well, I think it's it's important for both shallow reasons and substantial reasons. I think for, for many of the... Um, countries outside of Afghanistan that's been deeply engaged, not the least Western countries, uh, a lot has been staked on uh, on female emancipation. Uh, and part of that has been simply to justify intervention, an intervention that has otherwise been quite problematic to sustain and, and quite problematic also to defend vis-a-vis uh, -vis one's uh, own political constituencies at home. But uh, substantially, there are also good reasons, of course, because uh, because Afghan women have not had uh, uh, much presence in public life uh, under the Taliban. Uh, their conditions were abysmal. So there are very, very good reasons that this is on top of the agenda. And, uh, and certainly there has been significant progress, not least when it comes to the political voice uh, of Afghan women. And I agree with entirely with with Turin, that's, that's not only an elite issue, although it may be elite women that are most visible when we look at it from a distance. I think this matters a lot to, uh, to all Afghan women and, in fact, to all, to all Afghans. So I think there are, big, there are very serious reasons to be uh, concerned about, uh, about the future of uh, women's rights to political participation, to participation in public life, economic life, uh, education uh, as uh, the negotiations move forward, or perhaps I should say if the negotiations move forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, Turin, I mean, you've obviously already problematized this a bit, but how how can the international community balance these two things? The one on the one side, yes, women's rights and being very concerned for, for the rights of women on the ground, but at the same time, avoiding this uh, neoliberal, maybe even quasi-imperialist uh, kind of idea of... Uh, I don't know, fixing everything for another country, um, it, which can do more harm than good. I know this is, I'm asking you to solve everyone's problems here, but uh, maybe you have some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, if, if we had a good recipe for this, um, you know, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, of course, the, the first step is, is um, 
is knowledge. Um, I, you know, it's um, it's more likely I think that the Taliban will want to, or by effect, will restrict women's rights in indirect ways during the negotiations. Um, you know, so they might uh, they might not come up with a list of you know these are the ways we think women's rights should be um, rolled back or these are the restrictions on women we want to impose. I, I'm not sure if they will do that. But what they might do is to suggest certain um, ways of, of giving uh, Islam a larger role in the constitution and politics. Um, you know, they might uh, want to change the basis of law, for instance, uh, give more power to uh, religious scholars uh, in ways that might have very serious effects on, on women's rights. Uh, so it's very important that those international actors who are engaged in the, in the negotiations really appreciate this and understand, you know, for instance, what would be the consequences of, of having, for instance, Islam as the sole source of law, you know, what would that actually mean for, for, for women's rights and the rights that they already have. So they need to have a very good understanding, for instance, of, of things like the existing civil code, what exactly that gives women in terms of marriage rights, um, other, you know, rights to property and so on. Uh, so they, they know what's at stake. Uh, I think that's like the number one thing. Um, and then, of course, you know, there is the leverage of aid. Um, I am not sure if the entire kind of um, range of international actors involved are equally concerned about women's rights. You know, it's probably more the Europeans uh, than the Americans, for instance. Uh, although I've, now we're going to have a, you know, inshallah, a term of change of administration in the US. But... So, um, you know, so I think it's it's um, now the, the, the kind of um, things that those who are concerned with human rights and women's rights, um, they need to use all the leverage they can, um, and um, both in terms of aid and also in terms of the negotiations. Uh, you know, they are the ones who, who facilitate these negotiations anyway, so they can't just now say that, you know, this is an Afghan issue and we'll leave it for the Afghans to tell. Uh, well, you opened the Pandora's box with uh, mentioning the U.S., so I think uh, I'm just going to run with that really quick. Um, we don't want to get too hung up on it, but uh, what's going to change now with with the Bi Biden administration? I mean, even just today it was in the news that the Taliban is kind of making a statement, reaching out and saying that, um, that they should maintain the, the talks and the peace accords, but um, there's it's complicated and there's a lot of history there. And so I'm wondering, um, and both of you can answer this. So Krista, maybe you want to go first and Turin, but um, look into your crystal balls for me and, and tell me what do you think we can expect to happen, to develop? Well, I think it's fairly likely that the Biden administration will try to sustain the momentum that has been created uh, under Trump. After all, uh, over the past two years, there has been a process that... Uh, um, that may lead towards some sort of a settlement of the Afghan conflict. And uh, I don't think it's likely at all that um, that uh, the new administration will suspend the U.S. military withdrawal, which is very well underway. We're now down to some 5,000 soldiers in Afghanistan. And the plans are for that to be cut back to 2005 by early next year. So it's a rather... Uh, it's a rather dramatic drawdown of, uh, of the military presence. All of that, I think, is going to move forward. But I do think that it's very likely that the Biden administration will uh, give more emphasis to the issue of women's rights. Uh, of course, that brings up this whole dilemma that has been lurking here in the background throughout all of this conversation, which is that 
on the one hand, uh, international uh, sustained attention is uh, absolutely essential for the uh, for the issue to receive the attention that it desires. On the other hand, that always entails the risk that it's closely associated with uh, uh, with a military presence and an intervention that, to a significant share of the Afghan population, is widely unpopular. So it's this ambiguity that is so difficult to deal with, and therefore international supporters of the women's uh, issue they they need to they need to act smartly uh, and i think that would entail also finding ways in which to constructively engage uh, uh, the taliban in uh, implementing uh, implementing policies that uh, actually support women for example in the educational arena where there is there are openings in many taliban controlled areas for supporting uh, female education yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you know, I Christian pretty much covered it. Um, there is an issue of you know the sense of kind of uh, um, coming collapse um, might might ease up a bit um, because uh, I think that's one of the 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 fears that a lot of Africans have now that you know we're just going to run out of time and then all the American troops are going to be out and then there's going to be a civil war. Uh, I think this, the time there might be some more flexibility in the timeline, um, maybe. Or you know, there's also this talk about this um, kind of protection force that will you know protect embassies and aid this kind of UN and those uh, those agencies. So aid might be sustain sustainable. Uh, I think that's also a possibility under Biden. That of course that will perhaps generate controversy with the Taliban. Mm. So my final question for the two of you, and this is probably one of the hardest questions, um, is it conceivable that Afghanistan can have a peace agreement that won't weaken women's rights? Kristen, do you want to take a stab at it? Um, yeah, it, it, it is a really hard question. And uh, I want to be optimistic, and I am hopeful that that may be possible. But I think... For that to happen, uh, a sustained, prolonged peace process will be necessary because where the parties now find themselves, uh, there is a wide distance. I certainly don't think the Taliban is ready to uh, to um, commit to a deal in which all women's rights that we currently have formalized in Afghanistan are sustained. But I'm not even sure that uh, the government side is... Uh, in my eyes, sufficiently committed to to give this issue the um, the weight to spend political capital on defending women's rights through the negotiations. So I think both parties may need uh, time to to let this mature and to to come to a more to a deeper understanding of how important that will be to Afghanistan's future. And there, I think also there is some leverage on behalf of the international community because. There's no doubt that the Afghan government uh, really believes that it needs sustained international support to keep uh, Afghanistan afloat. But we also see that the Taliban are really, really eager to keep a strong international commitment on the aid scene and able to be uh, running uh, the country moving forward. So I think there there is, there is leverage. And using that leverage smartly, I think, is the best that the international community can do at the moment. Mm. Torun, yeah. Do you think that do you think it's conceivable, or any other kind of kind of final closing thoughts? 
It's, it's very difficult to say. Um, you know, I think that it's important to keep in mind that the women of Afghanistan, the rights that they have in law, you know, are not incredibly progressive compared to the region. Um, you know, their family law, the Afghan family law is still based on, on Sharia. Uh, women have unequal rights to divorce, custody. Um, you know, um, there is a lot of um, uh, rights that they do not have. So, and, and trying to imagine, I think, what the Taliban will want to restrict, I think, I'm guessing now, um, I think that their concern is perhaps this kind of, they have this sense of, of moral collapse. Uh, you know, they see the cities, they see all the intermixing between um, men and women. Uh, in universities, you know, in public areas, um, and they somehow would want to address that. Um, perhaps it's possible to do that in a way that doesn't actually mean a lot of change in terms of substantial rights. Um, uh, you know, time will show. Yeah, it will, and uh, I'm really interested to see what happens. But I'm also very excited to hear what people have to say next week. So thank you both for joining me. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. Today's episode was just a teaser of the kinds of discussions you can hear next week with speakers from both Afghanistan and Norway. You can find the events on Facebook or go to afghanistan.no to learn more. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. Music by Martin Redemol.